The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah 42. We're coming toward the end of our season together for this school year. I'm going to be teaching this week, next week, the following week, and then we're going to get to hear from the Tanquists on the 21st of May, and then that's the end of our, our year, and then Lord willing, we'll get to join back together and continue to push through Isaiah's vision of the gospel and of the Messiah next fall. It's been a great joy for me, and I pray that it's fed you today. Today, we get to meet him up front and personal. So let's pray that God will grant us eyes to see and hearts that can be warmed by this majestic Messiah. Lord God, I ask for grace now. Jesus died that we might have the ability to know you, and we're asking that that blood-bought mercy would be operative in this room this morning, bringing healing and help, developing holiness and deeper hearts of affection, willingness to say no to sin and yes to you. We thank you that we are saved people if we trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the fulfillment of all of your promises to us, even eternal life. If we renounce Satan and all of his works and all of his ways and we commit that we will follow you, Lord Jesus, we need your help. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. Even this morning as we open your book, we need to meet Jesus. We can't live without him. So come and feed us this morning. Just as Brother Don was calling us to, we want to eat on the bread of life, the bread that never perishes. So satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Christ I ask, amen. Isaiah 40. A couple weeks ago, we were in Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 42. A couple weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 40, and we saw the first declaration of good news, at least using that word, not the first declaration of the gospel in the book, but the first time the word was used, that in the future, when the highway is made for our God to bring out the captives, the prisoners, the song will be sung, good news, behold our God. And that is the language of the gospel that we see picked up in the rest of the New Testament. It's the good news of the kingdom. Our God reigns, and He's going to do it through His Son. In this book, we encounter various pictures of the Messiah. I've called Him Celebrating the Servant Savior. And today we get to see Him first called the Servant this is where the book has been heading up to this point. Earlier chapters portrayed for us a spirit-empowered king, and now he's going to be called the Savior. Isaiah 42, look with me as I read. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you this servant in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light 
for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. Isaiah 42, behold. Now right here, if you were reading this verse without chapter breaks as is intended, you'd see that this is the third time behold is shown up in a, fort, in, a, in a short few verses. In verse 21 of chapter 41, God calls the various gods that many of the Israelites have been following, set forth your case, bring your proofs forward, bring them and tell us what is to happen. There's many people you'll read in certain study Bibles, not the ones I would encourage you to get first off, but in certain study Bibles or in commentaries that many scholars call this second Isaiah meaning that they don't believe that it was written, this portion of Isaiah was written by Isaiah, the son of Amos, Isaiah of Jerusalem. And most of it's because he has such a vision of the future, it couldn't have been written by him. But that's exactly the point. When you get to this point in Isaiah, one of the key arguments is that God says, gather up all your idols, Israel, that you continue to trust in. How many of them can foretell the future? Go back and look at what I've declared, and behold, it is happening. And it will fully come about. All that I've declared. Who among your gods can foretell the future? Verse 24, behold. There it is, our first instance. Behold, you, O idols, are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. Ultimately, it's an abomination. That is, he who chooses you is that abomination. The next time we read Behold is in verse 29. Those who actually worship these idols, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant. Now this occurrence of my servant is the second time that we've seen this within the last chapter. Turn with me back to Isaiah 41, verse 8. Here, it's very clear who the servant is. My servant, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. Remember, Abraham was, was way up in Mesopotamia. God gathers him gives him Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, twelve nations. I gathered you from the ends of the earth. I called you from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. That is, they will be followers of the living God. They will honor Him, live for His sake, not for their own. That's what a servant is. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Therefore, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Right here, my servant seems to be the nation. A nation that actually happens to be going after many other gods. Turn with me to the end of chapter 42. My servant shows up again. The end of 42, verse 18. God's talking directly to His people. Hear, you deaf. There's the irony, isn't it? Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, in order that you may see. Who is blind but my servant is blind? The very one that He called to, to be a follower can't see God in order to follow Him. And therefore, he's gone his own way. 
Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe. His ears are open in one level, but he doesn't hear. Remember, this is the audience that Isaiah came to minister to. Who will go for me, God says. Isaiah says, here am I. What do you want me to tell him? Be ever looking, but don't see. Keep listening, but don't hear. And it's a judgment on the nation of Israel, a judgment that will move all the way through exile and culminate in the cross, in the representative Israelite who will stand on behalf of the people. How long, O Lord, do I have to keep preaching this way? Keep looking, but don't see. Keep listening, but don't hear. Until the entire nation is burned down like a forest. Indeed, only 10% will be left and then I'll burn it again until all that's left is a single stump. The holy seed is its stump. That was Isaiah chapter 6. So there's a relationship here between the many and the one. All the many are going to get burned down until all that's left is one. Now we come, we see framing our passage, our two references to the servant... The servant, the nation that God has called, the offspring of Abraham, and the servant that is deaf, that is blind, hostile to God, going their own way. Right in the middle of it now, we read, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Very literally, I, I, I keep him fast. I hold him fast. My chosen in whom my soul delights. Now just let your eye go up, or maybe across, wherever it is. It's up on my page. Verse 24 of chapter 41. An abomination is he who chooses an idol. Israel's filled with people choosing idols. In contrast, God is now making a choice. The one who chooses the idols is an abomination. But this one, God delights in. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This servant captures God's affections. The Lord actually delights in this servant, but he doesn't delight in sinful people. He's not thrilled in the blind and the deaf who go their own way, rather than listening, rather than seeing. So we have to ask, who is this? Who is this? And the next statement gives us a clue, but, but at this point in Isaiah 42, he's not going to, to unpack too much for us. But, but what he says now is, I've put my spirit upon him. And if we've been walking through the book, as we have, we recognize that this is an echo of an earlier text. Isaiah chapter 11 said, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this son of Jesse. Remember, God wipes out the garden. He portrays Israel at the beginning of the book like they are the Garden of Eden. And he, he declares they're all going to be wiped out, burned down. All that's going to be left is a single seed and that seed will begin to blossom. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it said, He's the root of Jesse. Jesse was the, was the father of King David. And it's to David that was promised, A son will come from you, whose kingdom would be everlasting, his throne would never end. And it's that one. That one who would rule the nations, whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The one upon whom the government of the world would rest. And through him, justice would come, righteousness would come. On that one, the Spirit of the Lord will rest. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And this king will be the leader in wisdom. If you could just follow him, you'd be walking in the right path, not in the way of the fool that leads to destruction. But narrow is this way, whereas wide is this way. 
Oh, that we could have eyes to see. Oh, that we could have ears to hear, to follow this spirit-empowered king. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This one delights in his God, and this text tells us God delights in him, the one upon whom his spirit rests. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will not be pulled away by bribe, by prejudice. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And justice seems to mean, on the one hand, it's something to be terrified of, and on the other hand, it's something to rejoice in. And so I'm wondering if the word justice is consistent. I'm wondering if the word servant is consistent. Great questions. Is the word justice consistent? Is the word servant consistent? From Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 52, 53 rather, Isaiah 40 to 53 The exact same term, servant, shows up 20 times. And and it's always in the singular. Always. Whether it's referring to the nation, or whether it's referring to the representative of the nation, it's always singular. And then at Isaiah 53, who knows what happens in Isaiah 53? The servant is wounded for our transgressions. The servant is bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon God's servant. And by his wounds, we get healed. That is, we gain eyes to see, we gain ears to hear, so that all of a sudden, through the work of the servant, healing comes and generates a whole bunch of people who can follow him, who now have eyes to see and ears to hear, and they can be called servants. And what we're going to see is that from Isaiah 54 to 66, the servant term shows up only in the plural, never in the singular anymore, and it always refers to those who are following the single servant. Same term, how about justice? Justice, mishpat. By its nature... It's often used in the Pentateuch to actually talk about a judgment that is rendered, connected with law. In our passage, it's going to be connected to law down in verse 4. So law or teaching. There's teaching and there's judgments. And the judgment is like a declaration of, as I assess the situation, this is my rendering. For example, here, what happens is the term judgment, same exact word, can by extension also refer to the context that is produced when someone is making upright judgments. He can work judgment, that is, work justice. So a just decree creates a context where justice is thriving, and it's the exact same word in Hebrew, mishpat. And the term used in Isaiah 11 of the spirit-empowered king, working justice, is mishpat. And the term used in Isaiah 42 of now this spirit-empowered servant is equally mishpat, justice, judgment. So, he's called the servant. The people were called the servant in Isaiah 41.8. But already, we've seen a contrast in the book between the king and the people. And it's the king of whom it was said the spirit would rest on him. And and so we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is he doing? What's Isaiah doing? And I think upon the second read, the third read, 
which all of us are privileged to have. We're not hearing Isaiah's terms for the first time. We're reading this as Christian scripture in light of where everything plays out, including the rest of his book, but also the New Testament. And what we find is that this servant, and we're going to see it super clear when we get to Isaiah 49, super clear that the servant, the individual, represents the servant, the people. And only through the servant, the individual, will the servant, the people, become servants. This one will bring forth justice. Here's the text that Jesus used to open up his ministry. In the synagogue in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news. That's gospel, to bring forth the gospel. That's what God's anointed me to do. To bring forth the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captive, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. That's first person. This is autobiographical. Now in our text, it's simply biographical. God's telling us about this one And I'm suggesting that in chapter 11 and in chapter 61, the one who enjoys the presence of the Spirit is the same one that we're reading about in Isaiah 42. This one will bring forth justice to the nations. Notice the breadth of this statement. Once again, just like in chapter 11 and as in Isaiah chapter 9, The work of this spirit-empowered individual is much bigger than Israel the nation. This specifically says he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Gentiles. That's you and me. And as a reader, we have at this point, as Brother John already drew our attention to, we would need to either fear or celebrate. Why why would we, pardon? Can we do both? If you're the one who has experienced injustice, and you find out that a more superior judge is going to show up? Like the lower level judge has worked injustice, and now there's going to be a rebuttal. We're going to take this to a higher level court. And now you learn that this higher level judge, who cannot have any superior is going to work justice on your behalf when you've been oppressed, when you've been broken, when you've been hurt, and it seems like no one has cared for my pain. Think about Romans chapter 12. Paul's motivation when he says, Do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good because... Anybody remember the reason that he gives for why we should respond to evil with good rather than to retain bitterness and strike out on our own? What's the motivation that he gives in Romans 12? Respond with good because the Lord will take care of it. God will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And that's straight out of Deuteronomy 32. A promise of God from the Old Testament looking ahead to the future after Israel's exile and he redeems his people. The declaration is, those who remain hostile to me and to my people, I will judge. And so, if you happen to be among the people, there's hope there. So this is a text that wants to give hope to the oppressed to the broken, and yet if you happen to be hostile to God, then, or you happen to be the oppressor, and you find out that the higher level judge is going to show up, then 
there should be a nervousness. Now what's striking to me in this text is it actually says He'll bring forth justice to the nations and then in verse 4, the coastlands are waiting for His law. Now what this, what this suggests is that the nations, it seems to me, are here being portrayed not as enemies, but as those for whom this judge is working. And the eager longing for this judge's teaching, this judge's instruction, it suggests somehow all the nations that were listed from Isaiah chapter 13 to Isaiah 23, we jumped over that section and just jumped to 24, but we saw that 24 was the summary. The whole earth has rebelled against the covenant of God. The whole earth. Not just Israel, every nation and the people group, every tongue and every tribe has gone against the eternal covenant of God. They've transgressed against this God and therefore God declares curse and judgment on the entire world. And yet now, in this text, you've got the coastlands. So I think the image here is, think about the Mediterranean Sea and all the islands and the coasts that touch the Mediterranean Sea, and it's being used, using that as a picture of... Sorry, it would be this way if you're sitting in Israel. It would be this way, and it would be a picture of the furthest points on the globe. As far as the sea stretches, those coastlands are eagerly awaiting for this judge to show up and render his instruction and to work his justice. Bethany? As such, can Isaiah 61 be applied to the Lord's servants? That the Spirit of the Lord God is upon us to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom for the captives? The question is, is there any way that the Lord's, that, that the declarations that are given about the servant himself can be applied to us? That the servant's ministry becomes our ministry, that his mission becomes our mission. And when we get up to Isaiah 49, and I'm not sure how far that will be. It could even be before the school year's out. Um, that we're going to see that's exactly what happens. We're going to see that Paul, one of the favorite titles that he wants to, that he, that he gives himself is that he is the servant of the Lord. And in the very context that he's declaring that, Isaiah, for example, Acts 13, he's going to cite a servant of, of the Lord text, a singular servant text, not a plural, he's going to cite Isaiah 49.6 and say, this is our mission. But originally it was the mission of the servant. Because those who are in the servant, those who are in Christ, take up the mission of Christ. We're going to see it the same way in Acts chapter 1, where, at, where Luke, Luke says, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote in my former book, the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach? Luke is what he began to do. And Luke ends with the ascension. And that's what Jesus began to do, suggesting that what we're reading about through the church is nothing other than what Jesus continues to do, what the servant continues to do now through his servants. We're going to see in Isaiah 52, that it's going to say, what's it going to say? Um, how lovely are the feet, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of, what was it? In Isaiah 52, it's how lovely are the feet of him, him, in the NIV they still keep rendering it plural, it's him, how lovely are the feet of him, but when you get to Romans 10, Paul's going to cite it and make it plural. How lovely are the feet of those? And the NIV translators, they're, they're simply working through Paul's rendering, but in the context of Isaiah 52, it's singular. And the one who will be the good news proclaimer, I think, I'll get to reassess once I get there, but I think it's the very one who's going to die as the servant at the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53. So what we're seeing is a broadening. Those who are in the Christ take up the mission of the Christ. Those who identify with the servant and begin to follow him go where he goes, and that's going to be to the poor and to the broken. 
But what, what I want us to see here is that this text is assuming something that we won't get answers for in fully until we get to Isaiah 53, the fourth of these servant texts, singular servant texts that are focused on the Messiah. And that is that there are a group of nations who must have all of a sudden somehow moved from enemy, oppressor, to recipient, and the one who's been oppressed. That somehow they're eager for this judge to show up rather than nervous and fearful. Look with me where this goes. He will bring forth justice to the nations at the end of verse 1. This one, as he's working on behalf of the nations, rendering good declarations, fighting against the oppressor, putting him down, and setting up a place of peace, as he goes, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. If you just let your eye move up to Isaiah 41, verse 2, it's anticipating King Cyrus of Persia. He's a different kind of ruler than the one we're reading about right now. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. The focus here is on his destructive power. The focus in our text is on the mercy and the help that he's going to give to the oppressed. Look at Isaiah. So they're talking about two different people at this point. One is Cyrus. One is God's servant. Look at 41.25. I stirred up from the north, the same one, Cyrus, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on a mortar, as the potter treads clay. Now, texts can portray the movement of Christ in exactly that, that language as the one who destroys the enemies of God. But Isaiah chooses, now when he's talking about this spirit-empowered servant king, he chooses to portray him in categories that give explicit hope to those who've been wounded, to those who've been hurt. And the testimony is God knows your pain. He knows your pain. And He will act He's not self-advancing or assertive. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I, I'm seeing here an echo of Philippians chapter 2. Actually, an anticipation, not an echo. This was written far before Philippians 2. Um, Philippians 2, have the same mind among yourselves as Christ had. Who did not consider equality with God, even though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. He didn't let it go exactly, if that's what we mean by grasped, as if he let go his godness. But he's not making a show of it. He's willing to humble himself. Here, he's quiet. He himself is actually going to be abused and oppressed. And yet he comes, it says, and a bruised reed he won't break, and a faintly burning wick he will not blow out. So a bruised reed, there's something internal that's wrong, and a faintly burning wick potentially doesn't have enough oxygen coming from the outside. So he cures from within, and he supplies from without. That's the kind of, of person that he is. He just enters in and he knows exactly what you need. Cure from within or supply from without. And Matthew cites this text and then at the end says, this is the hope that Gentiles have. That it's, it's overflowing beyond the Jewish nation to reach needy people like you and me. 
Behold my servant. This is Matthew talking about the Christ. My servant whom I've chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud. Think about how he handled himself in the midst of the final week of his passion when he's brought into the sanctuary with the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not there lifting him up, lifting himself up like the kings of the earth. He's actually moving away from all the voices when more people are saying he's the king. He's moving away from that, like we saw in our passage in John 6. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. He's going to keep working, keep working until finally justice is complete. He'll bring forth justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles, hope. (laughs) Jason, this gives great hope. I mean, clearly, a bruised reed he will not break or whatever it says there. But I think that in Revelation, where then he judges the churches and he says that if you are lukewarm, he's going to spit you out. I mean, it's a whole different picture. It's sort of like this, this this lasts about so long and then final judgment is not this, well, it, it, could, it could still put us in jeopardy if we're one of the, I don't know that we're a bruised reed at that point, but does that make any sense? I don't even know, but it, it just feels like you can be a bruised reed, but you can't just let that be our, your identity. You have to have his healing to, you have to allow his healing to take you beyond that. Is that a fair statement or not at all? You you even see where I'm going. (laughs) Jesus comes as suffering servant and as conquering king. In his first appearing, he's working justice, proclaiming peace, and yet he also confronts evil and calls it such. You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. And yet, if my kingdom was of this world, my disciples would have already risen up with swords. But my kingdom is not of this world. And my authority and testimony will go forth through teaching, through persuasion, and not through a sword or a pistol. So that my followers are willing to die in order that you might be saved, rather than being willing to die in order that you might be dead. That's a completely different perspective on kingdom advance. And yet the day will come where not only the son, riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, will slay all the enemies, but where with him will be the saints following at his heels, equally carrying swords and rendering justice. Revelation 2 applies Psalm 2, which I believe is first about the Messiah himself, where he will rule the nations with an iron rod. And it applies it in in Revelation 2. It applies it to all the followers of God. So this is talking to one set of the churches. Warnings in the Bible are not just hypothetical. They're there as a gift of grace. So that what we fear tomorrow, like the wrath of God against all who fail to believe, who fail to persevere, we have come to share in Christ today if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at the beginning. So the persevering fruit is what gives evidence of an actual encounter. You can have temporary artificial fruit. And even in the text this morning that Brother Don was preaching from, it said they believed. It was in John 2 when he went back there. It said that they believed in Jesus, and yet it was not, not the right kind of belief because he saw their hearts. And so there's initial evidences that aren't real, 
And for all of us, we need those warnings as gifts of grace to truly move us because what we dread for tomorrow changes who we are today, just like what we hope for tomorrow changes who we are today. Both the warnings and the promises of blessing are the gifts of future grace that we latch onto and that can impact our lives today. And so texts like we have in Revelation chapter 2, they weren't simply designed to declare to the churches, your end is certain, but rather, if you keep going the way you're going, this is going to be the result. And as you hear me preaching May the Spirit of God work through there and quicken you out of your rebellion, out of your faithlessness, out of your blindness and deafness, and move you to truly be a servant of King Jesus. But, but this text is not packing all of Scripture's teaching about what Jesus will bring and do. It's, it's narrowing it in on a message of hope that gives comfort to afflicted people. But it's going to narrow that and, and we have to read all these servant texts within their, their context, it's, I mean, Isaiah's going to say, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and yet he's saying this, and so many of his audience don't have ears to hear, and he's not applying, the you is not applying to them. It's only applying to a group who are actually following, who have actually been healed, in your words, so that they can now see and follow, hear and follow. Now, there's something that's quite awesome here, and I had never seen it before, and it's just a set of repetitions. In verse 3, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. In verse 4, it says, this servant will not be discouraged. Now, in the English text, we wouldn't recognize that that's exactly the same term, but it's the same term in Hebrew. Jesus won't get bruised. Physically, we saw that, but it won't wound him to the point of making him stop his mission. But he's going to enter into people who feel like giving up. And the testimony is, he won't give up on you. He won't grow discouraged with your own bruisedness. It also says, a faintly burning wick. That's the exact same term when it says, he will not grow faint. He's not going to get to that point where it looks like he can't keep going. Even in the garden, we have to say he wasn't in this point. He was committed, not my will, yours be done. Even at his lowest level, ours was still lower and he was working on our behalf to save us out of it. He is not one who will grow faint or be discouraged and it doesn't mean that after he's established justice on the earth, then he'll grow faint and discouraged. That, that until. It just means that he will not grow faint or discouraged all the way up to the point when everything is reestablished. The day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord as in Sabbath has been restored. God is on the throne and all of his world is at peace. Fully sustained, fully satisfied in the arms of their king. He's going to keep working until it's all done. And he's initiated this final term process, but, but there's still so much more. So much more. It's not complete. We still find our hearts wounded and discouraged. My dad, he's a pastor out in West Virginia, in Appalachia, among a mountain people who themselves are very broken. And... So this is where my mom and dad are doing their retirement. They're ending their lives among some of the poorest of the poor and just loving them well. And my dad had a knee replacement that went bad. It got so bad he couldn't walk anymore. And this is after the knee replacement. And he, he, they gave him pain meds and he would take them and take them and... He tried to get off them. He didn't know. He doesn't have experience with um, drug addiction. But finally, he met a doctor 
um, that was able to identify your, you have, you're addicted to this pain medication and as you try to get off it, your body is reacting. And, but my dad, I, I'd never seen him so low. I mean, Therese and I thought it's likely he's, he would be dead within the year because he had lost all sense of purpose, all sense of hope. His pain was so great. And God in his mercy led him to a new doctor and they were able to go in and check out, redo, get a, get a second knee replacement. And they found out that the bottom, so you've got two holes in the bottom bone and the upper bone, and the, the new knee goes in and sticks on each side, and the bottom one didn't have any glue. So every time he was trying to walk, it was just banging. And it, it was just amazing to take away that pain, to have the second knee replacement done correctly, I mean, it's like God, God just used that as a gift of grace to give him life, to give him purpose, to help him have a clear mind to re-identify his identity in Jesus and what he's been called to do and to be and the husband that he's been called to be and the grandfather that he's been called to be. I mean, we just feel like in the last six months, um, my dad, he's not even the same man he was. He's, he's just like new. And... That is merely a foretaste of what is coming. But even believers can get down low and low where our hearts, we, I mean, I've shared this about poverty care. Often we have to give the physical bread in order for people to have a framework for the bread of life. If they don't know what satisfaction is, they've never had a full stomach, how can we tell them God's going to satisfy your needs? So often, even as in John chapter 6, Jesus allows the lesson to happen. You've got hungry people who get bellies fed, and then it provides a context for saying, don't pursue the bread that perishes. Pursue the bread that lasts. I am the bread of life. He meets us. He can meet you. He's met me. Even in the last week, He's met me and renewed me and identified in gentle ways rather than in hard ways sin in my life. And he's just moved me to, to um, ask him for forgiveness, ask my wife for forgiveness. And, and just, I've seen my spirit renewed. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to relate to our pain and yet he never gave up even when we feel discouraged and even ready. And then we have a shepherd who generates within us ears to hear. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's the kind of care we have. A Christ who is holding us all the way until the end, until all justice is realized, until peace is fully established, and we just have to know it's not there yet. And so we can long for more. And where we see the injustice, and when we're, where we feel the oppression, where we identify the darkness, we can continue to pray and plead that he will work justice through Jesus on behalf of those that we long to see come to him. Rather than simply working justice against them. The coastlands wait for his law. Believe me, if you've lived your life going your own way and you've seen that it's led to nowhere, inner longings can be set within your soul. Just give me someone who knows where to go. Someone who can give light to my darkness. You're talking to people here. If they're longing for instruction... From a just ruler, it means they've, they've tasted the other side and they're longing for something better. Their eyes have been opened to see the despondency and the brokenness of where that leads and he's exalting something better here. And I pray that you're among them at the far reaches of the globe, even beyond the coastlands now. 
who's longing for the teachings of Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's what we're talking about here. Disciples among the nations who are eager to follow the instructions of this servant. You remember in Isaiah chapter 2, in the latter days, the house of the Lord will be exalted and peoples and nations will gather to this elevated house of the Lord Longing to hear the law of God. Same term. Longing to hear the law of Yahweh. Now, it's the coastlands longing to hear the the law of this servant. So, let's just look now at the bottom part of this. We'll just read through it quickly and then I'll draw some attention to some beautiful truths. Thus says the Lord, the God... Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. It could have just said, thus says the Lord, and then told us what he said. But there's something going on here. We have a God who created all things once. He can create all things again. In chapter 24, the entire earth is in judgment. And now this God, who had the ability to create all things once, is going to speak again. And like bringing light into darkness, that's the term that's going to show up here. New creation is going to come from him. And he's concerned about the globe, not just about one people. And believe me, if he did it once, he is the one and only one who can do it again. It's this God who is now speaking to this particular servant. He's speaking to him, giving clarity about his ministry. I am the Lord. I've called you, servant, that's singular, in righteousness. I'll take you, singular, by the hand and keep you, singular. I'll give you, singular, as a covenant to the people. This is the new covenant in my blood. I will bring a, and it only happens through this one person, A covenant is about a relationship between parties. Here it's between God and a new created world. And at the center, this covenant is held together between God and a new people. The covenant itself is a person. And only in the person do you enjoy relationship with God. I will make you a covenant to the peoples. A light for the nations. If you're living in darkness, this is the only source of change. A light for the nations to open up eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This text, along with 49, 8 through 11, stands at the backdrop, I believe, of all of Jesus' exorcisms in the Gospels. He is a freer of the captive. And the strong man, you know of people, you have friends, you have family members who are still blinded by the prince of this world. You proclaim good news, and to them it's darkness. They are hard and cold. They are in prison. And Jesus came to bind the strong man and to give freedom to those who are enslaved. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. That means that whatever is going to happen with this servant will not take away glory from God. It will be the very means to give great glory to God. I will not give my glory to carved idols. He's declaring what will come about. The idols can't do it. When we see that God has worked already in the first appearing of Christ, it should heighten our hope. Because he has been faithful to his word, bringing it about just as he said he would. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare. It's about newness. Chapter 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, not like the first exodus, but now in a second exodus. They lie down, they cannot rise. They're extinguished and quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. New things. This text is focused on those new things. And whereas 43 is just saying Yahweh is going to do it, this text says He's going to do it through His servant. This just sets trajectories for us as we bring this to a close. I just want us to see in Isaiah 42 itself, it's like He tells us about the servant And then he goes on to tell us what he's going to do. Yahweh tells us the servant. He commissions the servant for this unbelievable ministry. And then God just declares what he's going to do. And it happens to be the same thing that the servant's going to do. So notice the influence on the coastlands. He will not grow faint, verse 4. This servant will not be discouraged until the coastlands wait for his law. Then... In verse 10, we read, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praises from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, sing praises to the Lord. Yahweh, the servant, having influence on the coastlands, let them, all the peoples, verse 12, give glory to the Lord and declare His praises in the coastlands. Leading the blind... Verse 4, and guiding them. Verse 4 is the coastlands wait for His law. They wait for guidance. Verse 7, He's coming to open up the eyes that are blind. To bring prisoners out of the dungeon. Prisoners out of darkness. Verse 16, God declares, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known. What Yahweh is going to do? The servant is going to do. They are being brought together in this passage. Number three, bringing light where there was once darkness. Verse six, I am the Lord. I will give you as a covenant to the people to a a light for the nations. Verse 16, I will turn the darkness before them into light. That's what Yahweh will bring about. And finally, overcoming idolatry. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, working through my Son, exalting myself, will not be given to idols. And God declares in verse 17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame all who trust in the carved idols. Now there's one element that is added in the second half of this chapter that we don't see in the first chapter. It's in verse 14. For a long time I have held my peace, says Yahweh. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, now, listen to this, I, I, Yahweh, will cry out like a woman in labor. I will grasp and pant. And the next thing you see is that the blind are following the Lord. It's very strange. Because from Genesis 3, 16 forward, birth pains have been a sign of curse. And now God in this text says, I, I will cry out like a woman in labor, a woman undergoing birth pains. I will experience curse. How does that work, God? And what comes from it is that those who were once blind see, those who are deaf hear, those who were in prison have now been set free. The servant, we're not told in Isaiah 42, will bear birth pains, will undergo curse. It just says that he'll show up and begin to teach. He'll begin to work justice. He'll come and save the oppressed. At the end of the chapter, God will work peace. God will work justice. God will be like light in the darkness. But it also adds that God will cry out like a woman in labor. And only on the other side of that cry will the blind see. When we get to Isaiah 53, this raises the question, okay, if the servant, if God's going to say, uh, give sight to the blind and the servant is the means, if God's going to give light and darkness and the servant is the means, if God's going to give instruction and guidance to the coastland and the servant is the means, and God's going to undergo the curse 
it just raises the question because that's the one part of the text that I don't see paralleled. It raises the question, if God's going to undergo the curse, does that mean the servant is the means? And we're going to see that that's exactly what happens. Father, how needy we are. We thank you that if we confess our sins, you are now faithful and just, just to forgive us because you justly punished us through the death of your Son. It's only in that context that we can hope for your law. Only in that context that we can long as those among the nations to see your justice played out. But now you are for us and not against us, and I thank you for that. You are for all of those who look to you through your servant Savior that you have supplied. Heighten our hope today for the day when there will be complete justice, where the oppressor will be fully put down. But may our hearts not go proud because we recognize that we ourselves were at the cross saying, crucify him far before we found ourselves like the centurion saying, behold, this truly is the Son of God. So keep us humble and in that humility meet us. A bruised reed you will not break, a faintly burning wick you will not blow out. So may you be the healing balm and the fresh air that brings restoration to our souls and brings new life into our flames and in those that we love and that we're longing to see know you. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.